Welcome to Unobscured, a production of iHeartRadio and Aaron Menke. She came in with the others. It was a typical day for Rasputin. Petitioners were lined up outside his door. They filed in with requests for prayer, for favors, for help with something in their lives that was out of reach. Maybe they wanted healing for themselves or for a wounded son who had come back from the front. And she came in with them. In fact, there's no sign that Rasputin thought she was any different from the rest. That is, until she stepped up to Grigori. Something in her hand caught the light, and he asked her to show it to him as she approached. Out from under her coat, she drew a revolver. With a ferocious light in her eyes, she raised it between them and wavered. After a moment, she broke down. The point of the gun fell to the floor, and she offered it to Rasputin. She had come to kill him, she said, and the secret police who were guarding Rasputin hadn't seen that she was carrying a weapon to her meeting with him. She could have taken his life then and there, but instead she put the gun in his hands. And as she did, she told him it was when she saw his eyes that she realized her mistake. She simply couldn't go through with it. What clearer sign could there be that Rasputin was God's chosen man? He had already survived Guseva's knife attack, The plot formed against him by his craven bureaucrats had failed, and he had foiled and survived other attempts too. This became just one of many. But even as attempt after attempt came to nothing, Rasputin's paranoia grew. Yes, the attacks were foiled, but they kept on coming, and they made one thing clear to Grigori. Russians, top to bottom, rich to poor, noble to peasant, were blaming him for Russia's problems. There were enemies abroad, But for Grigory Rasputin, there were just as many enemies at home. He had taken every opportunity to lift himself into a position of influence, and now he found out just how much that made him a target. Sure, I called his reaction paranoia, but then is it paranoia if the threats are real? Grigory couldn't help but see the knife in the dark cutting through him, and through Mother Russia as well. In fact, at some point in his final days, he penned a letter to his daughter Maria, that revealed just how dark his fears had become. And when that letter was finally found and read by Maria, it's clear that at least in this, Grigori was not blind to what the future held. Here's Douglas Smith to read Rasputin's words. My dear, a disaster is threatening us. A great misfortune is drawing near. The face of Our Lady has darkened, and the spirit is disturbed in the calm of the night. There will be cries and blood. In the great darkness of these griefs, I can now distinguish nothing. My hour will soon strike. I am not afraid, but I know it will be bitter. I shall suffer, and it will be pardoned to men. I shall inherit the kingdom, but you will be saved. The road of your sufferings is known to God. Men without number will perish. Many martyrs will die. Brothers will be slain by their brothers. The earth will tremble. Famine and pestilence will reign. Signs will appear to men. Pray for your salvation, and through the grace of the Savior, and of her who intercedes with him, you will be consoled. Grigori. Before comfort, however, would come catastrophe. It was almost as if Grigory Rasputin knew that it wasn't a matter of whether his enemies would finally end his life, but when they would become the icy hand of death and drag him. 
to his final end. This is Unobscured. I'm Aaron Mankey. It was the autumn of 1916. Alexandra had noticed the change. Gone was the wide-eyed, zealous holy man. Gone was the triumph and joy in his strong voice, and his excitement at the ascent into the Tsar's palace. Gone even was the man who had bragged about overthrowing his enemies and elevated his allies just the year before. Grigory Rasputin was weary, cautious, and withdrawn. Alexandra wrote to the Tsar, she said Grigory was wary of going out. He was afraid for his life. When the Empress sent her friends and advisors to speak with Grigory and comfort him, he only greeted them with screaming fits. But Alexandra's faith was still strong. She believed that God was working to keep her advisors safe. And it was sunny weather, she wrote. Surely he should take the advice he had given to so many others over the years. Go out into nature. Walk the wild places of earth. Meet God there and feel restored. But that Grigory, he was nowhere to be found. With each passing day, Rasputin of Petrograd left his old self further in the past. Gone were the years when he would travel from monastery to monastery, meeting with monks and religious teachers. He closed in the walls around himself. He even stopped going to church. And he drank. One friend would even remember that it was only after spending enough time with a bottle of Madeira wine that Rasputin would begin to open up. His fear would come pouring forth. One night, between the tears of rage and despair, he sobbed out the truth. He had lost the man he had always wanted to be. He called himself a devil, a demon. I am sinful, he said, where before I was holy. As they say, in vino veritas. In those moments of honesty, Grigori knew what kind of man he really was. But it wasn't only over Rasputin that storm clouds were gathering. A darkness, an electric tension in the air, spread over Russia throughout 1916. Faith in the Tsar was dying, and for good reason. It started near the war front, where battle lines were drawn, but it spread eastward into the empire from there. Here's Dr. Joshua Sanborn to explain. If you're in the front line or near the front line, you're experiencing a lot of personal insecurity in terms of violence. You're starting to see a breakdown of social order in many of these places, led in many cases by by deserting or off-duty soldiers. But even far away from the front, one of the key things that happens over the course of the war is a worsening standard of living driven by rapid inflation. This is a problem that the Tsar's government can't get around. Since the war began, the price of everyday items like milk, potatoes, bread, butter, and fish had been going up by four or five times their previous price in some cases. Corrupt officials, bad coordination, and decrepit railroads meant that the bodies of the wounded were being carried back to distant hospitals, and the food for both the army and the nation were often trapped on their way from point A to point B. You're starting to see bread lines, the discussion of the need for rationing. You're starting to see the supply situation uh, deteriorate in terms of trains being able to, to ship what they need to on time. All of these things are, are, are beginning to deteriorate. And social relations are also becoming more and more poisonous. Ethnopolitics has done its role there. This wide sort of influx of refugees and the difficulties of dealing with them has helped poison the, the social relationships. 
The president of the Duma wrote in some cases that rotting carcasses changed course halfway through their journey. Instead of going to the markets where they could be butchered and sold to feed hungry families, they were diverted to soap factories. Or if they were too far gone, directly to the rubbish heap. Meat that was supposed to go to the front for the army, it was piled high in mounds. There was nowhere to store it, and it wasn't allowed to be sold. Soon enough, the mounds began to stink. A poisonous fume and an insult to every Russian in the cities where food was growing more scarce by the day. Who Rasputin thinks should be the minister of, you know, of whatever, <laughs> you know, uh, minister of interior, let's say, that doesn't have a huge bearing on people's lives. You know, they're seeing things just just collapsing. And it's not the result of a particular minister or anything. It's the whole structure. It's, it's autocracy itself that has led them into this problem. One bitter irony is that the starvation of the Russian people had weighed heavy on Rasputin's mind for years. Even as he was bungling the appointment of government ministers, he was begging the Tsar to move his Russian soldiers like the pieces on a chessboard. It seems that in this case, at least, Grigory saw where the problems were. With so many people lining up at his door every day to spill their problems on his desk, how could he miss it? When it came to food, the cities were in crisis. By now, though, few people in the imperial government wanted to hear what Rasputin had to say about anything. Moving troops, moving food, moving money. After all, what did this holy man, drunk every night and whispering in the Tsarina's ear, know about any of that? But it wasn't just the looming specter of starvation that had the Tsar's subjects stirring with anger. It was also the work they were forced to do. Strikes in the munitions factories had begun at the end of 1915, and then there's what happened further south. In the Central Asian steppes that would later become Kyrgyzstan and Kazakhstan, there was open bloodshed. Because in the spring of 1916, the Tsar's military planners needed more workers at the front line. A lot more. They wanted a million men building bridges and cutting roads for the army. The projects were a massive amount of work, so they decided to force it on the subjugated peoples of the empire. But if you think drafting a million men into forced labor at the drop of a hat sounds like a recipe for rebellion, then you've been paying attention. Especially once you know that all the wealthiest Russian settlers and the imperial governors of those provinces all bribed themselves free of the draft. Soon enough, the imperial administrators found the telegraph lines cut, the railways destroyed, and the Russian garrisons under siege. Suddenly, rather than pulling men out of the Central Asian plains to serve the Russian army, the Tsar was sending soldiers in, and it was a bloodbath. Kyrgyz fighters destroyed Russian towns and killed Russian settlers. The Russian army rolled through the countryside, burning buildings and butchering people who had been the Tsar's subjects just months before. The Russian general in command wrote that in the wake of his army, he saw hundreds of unarmed and innocent Kyrgyz slaughtered. It had become another war of ethnic destruction under the emperor's hands. By the end of 1916, the empire was at war anywhere and everywhere, and it was falling to pieces. They had joined the court of Ivan the Terrible, and something about that era had followed the Yusupov family down through the years. In those early days, they had been warlords amassing wealth and hereditary power. They worked their way into the royal courts. They converted to orthodoxy, and generation after generation, they served the Tsar well. So well, in fact, that in the opening decades of the 20th century, as Nicholas and Alexandra took power and the currents of history channeled them to their meeting of fate, the heir of the Yusupov family was set to receive the largest fortune in all of Russia, 
which is to say, perhaps the largest fortune in the entire world. In fact, the stories about the family of Felix Yusupov were so extravagant and so numerous that they were almost unbelievable. Some said that the Yusupov hunting lodge, built in the 1500s, was still connected by an underground tunnel to the Kremlin in the heart of Moscow. They said that if you wandered the underground vaults, you would not see only hordes of medieval wealth, tapestries, and ornate furniture glowing in the low light, but that you might even stumble onto skeletons, still dangling from chains along the walls. And that was the story of just one Yusupov house, but they had three palaces in Moscow alone. They had 37 estates scattered across the Romanov Empire. Their lands included iron mines, coal fields, oil deposits, and a string of factories that made their family indispensable players in the world of the Tsars. And that was the world that Felix was born into, as Douglas Smith describes. Prince Felix Yusupov was a member of one of the great uh, aristocratic families of Russia, uh, centuries of extreme wealth and power and prestige, um, one of the, truly one of the richest, most powerful families in Russia. He was doted on, he was spoiled, um, he was indulged. Uh, he was, a, a, you know, sort of the worst, I would say, examples of the uh, debauched aristocracy in the early part of the 20th century. Nothing was expected of him. It was a life of glamour, of champagne. He was a notorious boy about society, if you will, at the time, who really had no purpose in life. Felix Yusupov shared the preoccupations of the Russian elite. Along with his older brother, he gained a deep interest in spiritualism and the occult. For a while, they held seances in their home. They hoped to speak to the dead, to hear voices from a world beyond their own. Questions of the afterlife seemed to terrify Felix, and he spent much of his time worrying about his weaknesses, the things he might lose. He and his brother even promised each other, like many spiritualist friends, that the first to die would travel back from the afterlife to appear to the other. But it wasn't just his life that Felix was worried about losing. It was also the way his position allowed him to dominate others. In fact, it seems he cared quite a lot about holding on to his prestige and power. Even as a child, Felix loved to flaunt his position. To entertain himself, he would even scoop together his mother's jewels and deck himself in her finery. Then he would order the family's vast household staff to gather around him and treat him like a monarch. If nothing else, he felt born to rule. Details like that create an eerie echo of Tsar Nicholas. And there are others, too. Felix's father was also a military man who loved being a soldier. He tried to be a kind patriarch and father, but lacked tact and subtlety. Felix was never his favorite son. But eventually, Felix was his only son. His parents had, had doted on his older brother who was killed in a duel and then all of their attention and devotion, especially from his mother, Princess Zinaida, were, were, were showered upon Felix. In 1914, the cords binding Felix to the house of the Romanovs were drawn even tighter when his mother arranged his marriage. His new bride? She was the niece of the Tsar. But now, the blood and treasure of the Tsar's world were pouring away. Not just as the war sapped the empire's strength and exposed its flaws, but at home, too. The Russian people had been demanding a different world. Step by halting step, Nicholas had given ground to them. Strikes, revolutions, parliaments, and manifestos. All were signs that the world Felix loved, with himself on top, 
was changing in his own lifetime. And in the war years, things were spinning even more out of the aristocracy's control, and the voices of the Tsar's subjects were growing louder. The household staff of the empire were talking back and making their feelings known. As Joshua Sanborn says, Above all, this feeling that the rich are doing okay in this war and the rest of us are bearing this burden and look at how badly they're managing it. This is becoming more and more dominant among all sectors of, of, of society. Felix Yusupov thought he knew who was to blame for all of this. He thought it was clear who was behind the concessions that Nicholas had made to the people's demands and who it was that weakened the empire's power year over year. The peasant from Siberia. Like many of the avid readers and rumor mongers of Russian high society, Felix and his family had closely followed the stories published about Grigory and his connection to the Romanovs. As we heard in the last episode, Felix and his mother weren't shy about trading their theories on how Rasputin manipulated the royal family. Every new salacious story about the empress and her advisor would have hammered those fears and suspicions deeper. But it wasn't all just secondhand. Because as a wanderer of the high society salons, Felix Yusupov had his own encounters with Grigory Rasputin. And when he did, the gulf between the two men could not have been any wider. In fact, in the things he wrote about Grigory, you can almost hear the sneer behind Felix's words. When they first met, Felix said he saw Grigory had a low, common face. The peasant's features were coarse, he said, and his eyes were small, shifty, and sunken, under heavy brows. Rasputin's hair was untidy, his beard was shaggy, and his clothes were common and plain. The thing that irritated Felix the most, though, was Grigory Rasputin's self-assurance. Simply put, the man looked like a peasant, he was a peasant, and so Felix thought that he should act like one. He should bow and scrape to the rightful rulers of the world. But Grigory did not. In fact, Felix said that just being looked at by Rasputin was like being pierced with needles. And Felix never forgot that. And he never forgave that either. But for a while, Felix kept those feelings hidden. His aristocratic friends fell in with Rasputin. Some of the women in his circle even became the radical followers of the holy man. When they met with him, Felix even tagged along from time to time. But when the rumors began, they found a willing ear with Felix Yusupov. For a while, the pampered prince kept his distance. He swallowed whole the stories he heard about Alexandra. And as the days turned dark, his fear, suspicion, and resentment only grew. When Felix's father was dismissed from his post as governor general of Moscow, Felix knew who was to blame. And soon enough, he found his thoughts turning again and again to the peasant and to his belief that this coarse and shifty commoner must be a German spy, undermining the empire. He started meeting with other men who felt the same, people who had spoken out against the role that Rasputin played in the royal household. But he was disappointed with everyone he found to be all bark and no bite. With each passing day that attempts to kill Rasputin came to nothing, Felix Yusupov, heir to Russia's largest fortune, became more and more convinced he needed to do the job himself. Till he decides that he is going to save Russia by killing Rasputin and putting together a plot to do him in. And this becomes, if you will, his idée fixe. This becomes his raison d'etre. And he devotes all of his energies and times to figuring out how he's going to do away with Rasputin. And if there's one thing that a wealthy family of aristocrats had learned over the centuries while serving the czars, it was how to slide up to someone in a position of power 
and win their friendship, even if the real purpose was to stab them in the back. Their first meeting was a shock. Felix had hated Rasputin at their earliest encounter, but he had described him then as muscular, thin, and twitching with nervous energy under his peasant's attire. Now in the fall of 1916, Felix found himself face-to-face with a slumping man, puffy with drink, who was wrapped in luxury. And when Grigori started talking, Felix says he found it all incoherent. It was a discourse on brotherly love. To Felix, it seemed that even Grigori didn't understand what he was saying. When a phone call came from the Imperial Palace, Grigori rushed off, but not before he said he wanted to meet together once more. It was just what Felix wanted to hear. So they started to meet regularly. It was the first step in Felix's plan. He would become Grigori's favorite disciple. He would learn how Grigori thought, what he liked, and what his intentions really were for the Empire. If there were any diabolical con games that Grigori was running in the shadows, Felix wanted to ferret them out. Those were the threads he would use to weave a net around Rasputin and drag him in. For months, he bent all of his wiles and all of his wealth toward the plan. Rasputin's daughter Maria remembered that Felix started to visit their house almost every single day. They would send everyone out and close themselves up together to talk, and Felix would beg for prayers of healing and words of advice. He even ingratiated himself to the Rasputin's girls. Maria said that he became a close friend. And that made everything that came next hurt even more, because it was all just laying the groundwork for that coming December. Even as Felix became convinced that Grigori himself didn't have some sort of master plan for the throne, he held even more firmly to his conviction that Grigori needed to be killed. In Felix's eyes, Rasputin was a greedy and uncultured peasant, but he had risen too high for his position to be an accident. He must be a puppet for some secret masterminds who were exploiting him from a distance to bring about the downfall of Russia. So in a way, we come full circle. This was at the height of Rasputin's power. It was the time when the Empress paid the most attention to what Grigori advised about running the empire. He finally lived up to the rumors about meddling in imperial affairs. But even then, when a sharp-eyed Felix wormed his way into Rasputin's confidence to uncover the truth about his schemes, he didn't find some evil genius. He simply uncovered a selfish man who had improvised his way to the very pinnacle of world power by seizing each new opportunity as it came and abandoning the best parts of himself along the way. Now that Grigori had it all, the only thing he could do with power was wield it according to his paranoia, to protect his fragile position. On weighty matters, he was mostly ignored by everyone other than Nicholas and Alexandra, the rulers whose empire was slipping from their grasp. The fact that there was no grand plan, no grand conspiracy, was too much for Felix to believe. For so long, Russian aristocrats had imagined that the problem with Nicholas was Alexandra, and then that the problem with Alexandra was Rasputin. It wasn't hard for someone to simply bump the issue one step back, The problem with Rasputin must be some undiscovered cabal, the real enemies of Russia. Whoever they may be, Felix still believed that the best way to stop them was to take the tool out of their hand. So he put together a team, a wounded army officer who had been reassigned to Petrograd, a monarchist politician, Vladimir Purishkevich, who had a history of organizing Iliador's terrorist fighters, a decorated military doctor, likewise sent home carrying wounds from the war that they blamed on Rasputin. Oh, and one other man, 
Grand Duke Dmitry Pavlovich, the Tsar's cousin and one of Felix's oldest friends. It also helped that as a Grand Duke, Dmitry would be immune from prosecution. A member of the imperial family, a wealthy noble, two army officers, and a member of the Duma. To Yusupov, this team felt like the perfect representatives of every part of society that matters. Together, they would kill the upstart peasant, save the Tsar, and bring order back to the empire. Felix did all of this under the watchful eye of one other person, his mother. Even with a team like that, they decided to commit their killing in secret. An assault on Grigori's apartment would be too noisy. There was too much secret surveillance there, too many observers who could report events to the Tsarina, and no one wanted Alexandra setting her sights on them. Better to pick a secluded spot, late into the night, the kind of place where Grigori may have wandered in one of his revelries and lost his police tail. Felix had just the spot in mind, too. In fact, an old cellar in his palace was being renovated. It had two stairways, one that went up into the residence and one that opened directly onto the courtyard. They could arrive there and slip underground before anyone had time to notice them. In preparation, Felix set about making the room comfortable. His workmen put down carpets and hung curtains over the gray stone. Porcelain vases and oak chairs were arranged between other curios, ivory bowls, a cabinet of inlaid ebony, and tiny bronze columns. A little Italian cross, carved of rock crystal and silver, was put on display. The red stone mantelpiece was decorated with gold and ivory. It looked like a room used every day to entertain important guests. Its fireplace was ready for the welcoming glow of flames. It was all a picture of elegance. The stage was set. Now they just needed Grigori to arrive for his last supper. First, there was the lure. Felix knew what Grigori liked, so he offered up his wife. That is to say, he dangled an invitation toward Rasputin. The two had never spent time together. Would Grigori like to come by some evening and meet the missus? Grigori was never going to pass up on that. Then there was the hook. With the help of two servants, Felix arranged the furniture and set out tea, biscuits, and cakes, and then brought out some of his own wine from the cellars. Once he was satisfied with the food and drink, Felix went to church. He would later say that as he knelt in prayer, he felt a sense of divine lightness. He was happy. He was about to murder a man in cold blood. The mild evening faded into darkness. A fire was set in the hearth, and around 11, the team tropped down the stairs into the cellar where they gathered around Felix. It felt cozy and quiet. It felt ready. They still had another hour to wait, so they brewed tea and sampled cakes. Their conversation was muted. They set the room in deliberate disarray. It should look as if Felix's wife and a group of her friends had retreated just seconds before. When they had finished, Felix opened the ebony cabinet and pulled out a small box. He lifted the lid to reveal a small pile of crystals and handed it to the doctor. Putting on gloves, the doctor crushed them into a fine powder with a knife. He then carried it to the table. He split every pink cake and dusted the inside with a layer of powder. The group watched him work. When he was finished, he turned to them and told them that each cake now held enough cyanide to kill several men. He carefully stripped off his gloves and threw them in the fire. As they burned, the men retreated into the house to escape the smoke, and Felix left to fetch Rasputin. To break the nervous tension as they waited, the men turned on a gramophone. Purishkevich checked his revolver. At a quarter to one, in clouds of cigar smoke, Purishkevich and the Tsar's cousin Dmitri walked back down the stairs. 
They opened a second bottle of cyanide, dissolved into a solution, and poured it into wine glasses. Over at Rasputin's apartment, Felix knocked on the door, and Grigori let him inside as he fetched his hat and coat. From behind a curtain, the Rasputin's maid recognized the visitor as Felix, the family friend. It was only as the two men headed out into the night that a prick of conscience hit Felix. He said a feeling of guilt swept over him, and then shame. He had been cultivating this man's trust for months, and now he would use it to take his life. But it didn't stop him. They climbed into the car together. The doctor, now dressed in the uniform of a chauffeur, pulled out into the street. Felix checked behind them to be sure that they weren't followed, but Rasputin had dismissed his Okrana Secret Service detail the night before. He was with friends. They made their way back to the Yusupov Palace and the room that waited for them. Now, this is the right point to say. There are only a few people who saw what happened next. Two of them are Felix Yusupov and his accomplice, Vladimir Purishkevich. And as Douglas Smith says, we believe Felix's account at our own peril. Yusupov's memoirs are a network of lies, a tissue of half-truths, and, and an attempt to bathe himself in glory, if you will, for a truly horrible deed. Like, the only moment, I think, in his memoirs when he's ever really being honest is when Yusupov writes that, that killing Rasputin was, quote-unquote, a cowardly crime, for that is what it was. The police reports taken from other eyewitnesses are slim. Most of what we know comes from the men who did the deed. It makes every moment, every little detail, as suspect as it can possibly be. But this is the way they told the story. The car pulled up into the courtyard, and Felix ushered Grigori down the stairs and welcomed him to the cellar. They could hear the sound of Yankee Doodle playing from the gramophone upstairs. Felix explained that his wife was entertaining friends, but she would join them soon. In the meantime, they should have a cup of tea, and they made themselves comfortable. The doctor, who had walked around to another entrance, joined the men around the gramophone. Quietly, they moved to the top of the spiral stairway that led to the basement. They listened intently and waited. Felix offered Grigori wine and tea, but he refused both. They fell into conversation along their usual lines, but the more time stretched on, the more nervous Felix felt. Did Grigori suspect him? Had he done something to give himself away? But after a few more minutes, Grigori finally relented and asked for some tea. It was what Felix had been waiting for. Once Rasputin was drinking, Felix offered him biscuits and then cake. Soon, Rasputin was downing the cakes quickly, one after another. He expected that a single bite would kill him, but Rasputin went on talking calmly. Horror began to dawn on Felix. He turned to the wine. In his nervousness, he poured for Grigori into clean glasses, not the crystal that Purishkevich and Dmitri had laced with their cyanide solution. It wasn't until he opened a second bottle that Yusupov was able to drop Rasputin's glass on the ground and replace it in Rasputin's hand with a poisoned cup. This one was a Madeira wine. It was Rasputin's favorite. He sipped it slowly, enjoying every taste. When he was done, he got up and started walking around the room. The man at the top of the stairs had heard the corks pop. Minutes passed and turned to hours. I can only imagine the looks they gave each other as they waited to be called down, to help Felix dispose of a body. But their worry could only be matched by Felix, who continued to talk with Grigori, telling him that his wife's friends must be leaving soon, and he would go upstairs to check. Leaving Rasputin in the cellar, Felix huddled with the others upstairs around the gramophone. He hissed out an account of what had happened— 
Rasputin had eaten the cakes. He drank the wine, and yet somehow he was still alive. Their plan had failed. But they were determined that Grigori would not leave the house alive. Felix grabbed a revolver and descended the stairs again. It was 2.30 in the morning. Back in the cellar, Felix found Grigori with his head drooping. Another glass of wine got him back to his feet, and for a moment, the two men talked about going out on the town. Maybe they should go see the dancing girls, Rasputin said. Felix shook his head and walked over to the Italian crucifix. It's beautiful, he said. Grigori walked over to him and agreed. They were standing only a foot apart, and that's when Felix raised the gun, pointed it at Grigori's chest, and fired. Rasputin cried out and then fell down. The sound of the gunshot brought the rest of the men flooding into the room. They gathered around him while he twitched on the carpet until he lay still. The doctor leaned over and declared him dead. The shot had killed him. They rolled him off the carpet and onto bare stone. The army officer took Rasputin's hat and coat and put them on. He would leave the Yusupov palace looking like Grigori to anyone watching. The doctor and Dmitri went with him. Now it was just two of the conspirators left in the palace, and Purishkevich made his way upstairs. Just as Felix was about to follow, he noticed something. Rasputin's left eyelid began to quiver. Felix froze and then slowly walked back and leaned over Grigori's face. That's when Rasputin's eyes flew open. He moaned something between a growl and a scream, and then rose up from the stone floor. Clawing and grasping at the air, his hands caught Felix. The two men struggled until Felix freed himself and ran for the stairs, calling for Purishkevich. But he could hear that Rasputin was moving behind him. When they got back to the cellar, guns drawn, it was just in time to see that Rasputin had reached the door that led to the courtyard. Roaring like an animal, he disappeared up the stairs. The killers gave chase. When they burst out the door, they saw powdery snow falling all around them, and ahead, Rasputin stumbling into a run, headed away into the darkness. He was nearly at the palace gate and the street beyond. Purishkevich raised his revolver and fired two shots. When he could see that both missed, he took off running. The wounded man was too slow. As he reached him, Purishkevich fired again. This time, the bullet hit Rasputin in the back and dropped him to the ground. In a moment, Purishkevich was on him. He flipped Grigori over, pointed the gun at his head, and pulled the trigger. Purishkevich found Felix in the bathroom. He was in hysterics, hunched over the sink, spit hanging from his lips. It took a few minutes for him to recover. By then, the Yusupov family servants had dragged Grigori's body back down the stairs into the cellar. Purishkevich would later say that when Felix went down to see the body again, he flew into a frenzy and attacked Rasputin's head and face with a rubber club. It took members of the household staff to restrain Felix and drag him away. Felix was escorted to his bed where he collapsed. The rest was up to Purishkevich. He ordered the servants to wrap Grigori's body in a blue cloth and bound it with a cord, while he waited for the other conspirators to finish burning Rasputin's clothes and then circle back around. When they finally pulled up to the door, still exulting from Grigori's death, they saw the look on Purishkevich's face and realized that things had gone terribly wrong while they were away. So they moved quickly. The four of them dragged Rasputin's corpse into the car, to the waiting chains that were meant to weigh the body down. But as they piled in and were pulling away from the Yusupov palace, Puriskevich looked back and noticed that Rasputin's galoshes and his heavy coat were still in the car. 
The other men explained. They had followed the plan. They took Rasputin's clothes to the hospital train at Warsaw Station, where it would look like he was boarding to ride out of town. And there, the train stove was already blazing, lit by Perushkevich's wife. The only problem had been that the clothes didn't fit. Rather than destroying the evidence, they had just carried it all back out again, and now they were carrying them alongside Rasputin's body. The car crawled through the streets. They were afraid of driving too fast and attracting attention. But eventually, they cleared the city to the northwest and made it to their destination, the Bolshoi-Petrovsky Bridge. Beneath them, a branch of the Nevka River flowed, nearly invisible through a large hole in the ice. In a rush, the four men jumped out of the car. They dragged Rasputin's body to the guardrail, lifted him over the edge, and let him go. The body of this Siberian holy man fell into the dark water and vanished. Only then did the killers realize they had forgotten to attach the weights and chains to his bundled body. They scrambled to grab them from the car. Hurriedly, they threw the chains down into the dark hole after him. They hoped that, somehow, it would catch him and drag him down. One chain they wrapped around his coat. Like everything else about their plan, it was poorly thought through and carelessly carried out. In the mad scramble, one of them spotted a boot still sitting in the car's back seat. In a rush to flee the scene, they flung it over the side. Confident that they had saved the Tsar and pulled the parasite from the body of Holy Russia, the killers leapt back into the car, slammed the doors, and sped away into the darkness. Grigory Rasputin was gone. That's it for this week's episode of Unobscured. Stick around after this short sponsor break for a preview of what's in store for next week. People started coming to their apartment. They started to line up at the door as usual, bringing their pain, their needs, their desires. But there was no sign of Grigori to meet them. So Maria put in a call to her friends of the Empress, and they promptly relayed the message to Alexandra. Grigori, it seemed, was missing. After that, Maria called the woman who had introduced Rasputin and Felix Yusupov. Together, they tried to get in touch with Felix. After a few tries, they had him on the phone. But as Maria watched them talk, she saw something come over the woman's face. By the time they ended the call, Maria could tell she was deeply upset. Felix had sworn that he had not seen Grigori the night before. He had not picked him up, much less hosted him at the Yusupov Palace. That was all he had to say, and then he hung up. The two looked at each other. One thing was clear. Felix was lying, and with Grigori missing, they began to suspect why. Unobscured was created by me, Aaron Mankey, and produced by Matt Frederick, Alex Williams, and Josh Thane, in partnership with iHeartRadio, with research by Sam Alberti, writing by Carl Nellis, and original music by Chad Lawson. Learn more about our contributing historians, source materials, and links to our other shows over at grimandmild.com slash unobscured. And as always, thanks for listening. <laughs>